0: The scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It can be found on page 838 in the Black Bibles. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal them on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good, or to do harm, or to save life, or to kill? but they were silent and he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man stretch out your hand he stretched it out and his hand was restored the pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the herodians against him how to destroy him the word of the lord thank you mike thanks also daniel and randall i've decided that if i die in new orleans then Randall Bryant is going to lead the parade for me. And y'all are all invited, just so you know. So keep that in mind, because that was pretty amazing. Hey, we are, uh, we are in the second half of a, a couple of different passages in Mark that go together. They are both related to Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders in, uh, in Israel who were known as the Pharisees, over what is either lawful or unlawful, or what is either appropriate or inappropriate on the Sabbath day. The first had to do with his disciples picking grain, which was harvesting, which they thought was illegal. The second is about Jesus healing a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, which they believe is doing work. Um, And the point is that Jesus is trying to get them And then ultimately, because this is written down, to get us to stop focusing all of our attention on the rules and to put our attention where it actually belongs, which is on Jesus, who has already said that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So let's pray and then we'll look into this passage. Father, we thank you for the rest that you offer us in Christ. I pray for all here this morning, either for the first time or again that we would experience that rest in the gospel. We ask it in your name. Amen. In a storage closet all over the city, uh, actually in multiple storage closets, all over the city of Philadelphia, in public schools all over that city, were instruments, musical instruments, that had been used and abused and then broken. The, the school district, the public school district in Philadelphia, did not have enough money to repair instruments that were being used in their public schools that were breaking. And so they were being stored in a storage closet here or a vacant classroom there. All these broken instruments, cellos that were smashed and had like holes in them, and uh, trombones that's bells were crumpled up, and trumpets that were missing valves. All these broken instruments that were just scattered about that you know, at one point in their existence had been pristine and had been useful, now scattered about in all of these storage closets broken and not used for the purposes that they were created for. You know, there are a lot of times in my life that I can identify with those broken instruments. You know, Do you ever wake up, uh, I hope you do this, because I, I know you do this, do you ever wake up and just kind of wonder like, am I making any impact in the world? Is what I do on a day-to-day basis, is my life making any impact whatsoever? You know, maybe you may be pulling in a lot of money, but you may also, when your head hits the pillow at night and you close your eyes, you may wonder, what's this all for? What am I doing in this world? And some of you feel the brokenness of the world that we live in in very acute ways, walking around with broken bodies, chronic illnesses that are managed but not healed or cancerous invaders that are multiplying inside of your body or, or all of us as we grow older simply the aches and the pains and the stiff muscles and the lost eyesight and the lost hearing of aging all of these reminders year by year that we're all ultimately walking to the grave I'm not trying to be a downer here actually it's just a fact I mean in fact for a pastor For me as your pastor, not to remind you from time to time that unless Jesus returns first, you are going to die is actually ministerial malpractice, and I don't want to be accused of that. So I want to tell you, unless Jesus comes back, you are going to die. And, you know, this is the best place to talk about that because all of us, all of us in this room, every single last one of us are all broken instruments We're all broken instruments. We're in need of restoration. We're in need of repair. And according to Mark chapter 3, at the end of the day, that is what this conflict that Jesus is having with the Pharisees is all about. It's not about the rules of the Sabbath day. It's about what the Sabbath day ultimately points to. The Sabbath ultimately points to the restoration of all things in Jesus Christ. The Sabbath ultimately points to the restoration of all things in Jesus Christ. And for us simply to focus on rules, the rules of our spiritual lives, the rules of our culture, is causing us to miss the point. So what I want us to see this morning are two things. First, the Sabbath day poses a challenge to us. And second, the Sabbath poses an opportunity for us. It poses a challenge and an opportunity. First, the Sabbath that is laid out here in Mark chapter 3 poses a challenge. It is a challenge to all who seek their salvation by following the rules. Both religious people and non-religious people. Now, you might understand how, you know, if you're a religious person, you might be saying, well, I know how you can be okay. You can be okay by doing X and Y and Z. And if I can do X and Y and Z, then I know that I'm on the right path. And all those people in the world that are not doing X and Y and Z, they're on the wrong path. And so you're seeking salvation by following the rules. Jesus has a problem with this. Look at verse 6. This is actually really crazy. It's easy to kind of skip over this part, but stop and sit in it for just a second. In verse 6, after Jesus in chapter 2 had already made the claim to be Lord of the Sabbath, which is an explicit claim to deity, because only God can be the Lord of the Sabbath because God invented the Sabbath. So in chapter 2, when Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, he is saying, I am God. And then after he heals this man on the Sabbath, The Pharisees, the religious leaders in Israel, knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is a dangerous man. He is a threat to them. He is a threat to their religious leadership. He is a threat to them personally because he's blowing blowing up their categories. He's blowing up all the categories about how they understand the world and about how they understand how to be okay with God. He's just like, he's obliterating all of that. And they come to the conclusion that he has to be destroyed. And so what does the text say? The text says that after he healed this man on the Sabbath day, the Pharisees went out and they began to plot with the Herodians about how they might destroy Jesus. Now, that seems like a small detail, but that's actually a very big detail. What does that mean? Well, here's the deal. The Pharisees... And the Herodians are basically polar opposites. They are diametrically opposed to one another as different sects of Jews in the first century. They hated each other. They were, the, they were sworn enemies of each other. Because although they were Jews, the Herodians supported the Roman occupation of Israel. They were seen as traitors to their own people because they were fine with the Romans occupying Jerusalem, occupying Israel, and they were all in favor of kind of the laissez-faire moral and ethical standards of Greco-Roman culture that the Romans brought in with them. So they were fine. They were okay with kind of like the lax sexual standards, the intermingling of Greek philosophy with what they understood to be a part of the the Old Testament. And so that's a problem for the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees hated the Herodians. Why? Well, they believed that the Herodians were destroying the moral fabric of the Jewish people. And what's more, they were enemies of the state. They were traitors. In other words, the Pharisees were conservative. Now, the Herodians, for their part, also hated the Pharisees. They thought that the Pharisees were relics, right? They were dinosaurs. They looked to the past. They had this cute and quaint sexual ethic and and they believed that the Bible was true. They were keeping Israel stuck in the past. They were keeping Israel from moving forward culturally to where they could be if they just embraced the Greco-Roman government. You see, the Herodians were progressive. You get the picture? For the Herodians and the Pharisees to plot together is exactly like Ted Cruz and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez meeting in a dark alley to to plot the overthrow of the government. That's what's happening there. They are not allies. They were not friends. But they both agreed in this one thing. This Jesus fella has got to go. Why? Why? Because Jesus is more conservative than the most conservative person. He's more liberal than the most liberal person. And it freaks everybody out, right? It, it just freaks They don't know what to do with him. And he's challenging all of their categories. He's too dangerous and he has to go. He has to be dealt with. Well, ultimately, what's happening here is that Jesus is posing a threat and a challenge to every person who seeks to find salvation by following the rules, the religious person and the irreligious person. Now, this is happening culturally in our midst as well. You see, Jesus poses a threat to religious rule followers. The Pharisees were in conflict with Jesus. Because they had lost, not because Jesus had lost sight, but because they had lost sight of the ultimate purpose of the Sabbath. Over the course of hundreds of years, the religious leaders in Israel had created rules for the Sabbath day, manageable rules, where in keeping those rules, they could be assured in themselves of a couple of things. One, that they were okay, that they were okay with God, that their relationship with God was where it needed to be. But second, that in keeping those rules and knowing that other people were not keeping those rules they could feel spiritually superior to those who were not following the sabbath as strictly as they were and so even today we can get hung up on our list of do's and don'ts in our spiritual lives we can say look if you're really a christian if you're really spiritual well here's what you have to do you have to read your bible for you know 45 minutes every day and you have to pray for an hour and you have to go to a bible study and you have to be in a small group and you have to and you can't to do you know these things and we set our rules and then we you know what we do with those rules we use them the same way that the pharisees use their 39 rules for the sabbath day we feel okay in our relationship with god and we begin to feel superior to those who are not keeping the same rules that we ourselves have created even when they're not rules that are mandated by the bible but it's not only religious people that do this Non-religious people, secular people, or people who claim to be secular, are also very serious rule followers. Have you noticed that most people in our culture, even the ones who deny it the most, seek salvation? When I say salvation, I'm not talking about they want to go to heaven. I'm saying they, they seek a way to feel okay. Okay. They seek a way to find ultimate meaning in their lives. They seek a way to kind of know who is in and who is out. Uh, you know, so who is okay and who is not okay by setting rules, keeping those rules and punishing those who violate those rules. Have you have you ever have you noticed that that, that a, a secular person or a non-religious person can be just as fundamentalistic in their in the way that they live? as the most religiously fundamentalist person uh, that we know. Here's an example. There's a Presbyterian church in uh, Columbia, Missouri called The Crossing. It's an evangelical Presbyterian church, EPC. It's a close cousin to us here in the PCA. And this church has done some really wonderful and creative work regarding how to love their neighbors in their city. Most notably... They entered into a partnership with a local nonprofit that convinced medical practitioners, hospitals in the in Columbia and other medical practitioners to settle outstanding medical debts for one penny to the dollar, which is amazing. And what they did was they came to church that next day, and they said that next Sunday, and they said, "We have entered into this deal with medical practitioners in our city." And they, in one Sunday, raised 430,000 dollars from their congregation. It's the a big congregation. What that meant was is that immediately, in Columbia, Missouri, and the surrounding area, the surrounding county, 43 million dollars worth of medical debts were cleared taken care of. They were deeply loving their neighbors, but that's not all. They have also helped found music and art programs in the city, including helping found and fund an art gallery on the main street in the middle of Columbia. They were doing all kinds of creative work to, to reach out and to love their neighbors, but it changed, and it changed not long ago, and it changed fairly quickly. Very recently, after the pastor of the church preached a sermon that touched on the changing norms of sexuality in our culture. And in that sermon, he used the word broken in a reference to people who struggle with gender identity. The rest of the sermon... Was about God's massive graciousness and redemption in Christ to every person in our culture who struggles sexually, which he mentioned, and I'll mention to you, by the way, is every single person sitting in this room. We are all broken in that way, and that's what the the bulk of that sermon was about. But the damage had been done, and that, like, you know, three sentence aspect of that sermon, protest immediately broke out in the city of Columbia. And that art gallery they helped found and fund very quickly caved into the pressure, severed its relationship with the church. And the church has done a really good job of responding graciously, but it's a firestorm, it's a big deal, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's kind of a mess. Now, why do I bring this up? I'm not bringing this up to turn on the culture war switch, you know, right now, or to make you feel bad, depending on where, where it is that you stand on this. I'm bringing this up for a very particular purpose. I want you to think beyond that. I want you to think beyond that to what's behind it, okay? So do that with me for just a second. What's behind that reaction? What's behind those protests? What's behind that art gallery saying, whoa, 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 yeah, 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 you know, we, we don't know these guys, you know? You know, what's behind all of that? Well... What's behind that is that it's a story of rule-breaking and being punished for breaking the rules. This church broke a cultural rule that everybody knows and that everybody follows. And if you don't follow, you're going to suffer a consequence. That cultural rule that everybody knows, everybody should know this, is that you do not question sexual freedom ever. That's the rule. If you break that rule, you must be prepared to suffer the consequences. Do you see that? Do you see how religious people and non-religious people both try to find salvation in creating and following and mandating rules to be followed? This is why Jesus is upset in this passage. And this is why the Pharisees and the Herodians who are sworn enemies with one another conspire to get rid of Jesus. You see, Jesus is grieved because they're missing the point. Everybody. The religious people and the non-religious people, they're all missing the point. The point is that the Sabbath day points beyond itself. It points to the restoration of that which is broken. The Sabbath is a manifestation of gospel reality. The, the, The Sabbath tells you that you do not obey so that you will be loved and accepted by God. It tells you that you are loved and accepted by God, and therefore you joyfully obey. That's the difference between focusing on keeping rules, whether religious or cultural, and focusing on the gospel. And there, the Sabbath also presents an opportunity. Jesus shows this to us when he told the man in the story to stretch out his withered and unusable hand. What had been broken was restored. What had been a source of shame was now made whole. And the Sabbath, this one day in seven where we are given the grace of resting from our labors in the world, is not about following rules so that God will love us. It is about sitting and soaking in God's love for us as he pours it out to us by his grace. It is about replenishing resources that have been exhausted. It is about finding rest for the weary. It is hard about the redemption of all things in Christ. So we talked a good bit last week about how taking one day out of seven, not to have to work, not to have to labor, not to have to struggle, is a beautiful thing and not a burdensome thing. If you weren't here, you can go back to last week's sermon. You can listen to that on the internet. But I want us to focus on the big picture here. That the Sabbath is ultimately about the redemption of all things in Christ. The Sabbath's presence in our lives is to call us to long for the new heavens and the new earth where we have rest from our labors for all eternity. And it is also a part of our participating in the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus was to make this rest known. The mission of Jesus was to bring the reality of the kingdom of God down to earth. And he foreshadows that ultimate restoration that we have when he ultimately returns by providing temporary restoration through his miraculous healings. And now he has left us, his church, here on earth to continue the work that he began. He's left us here to make disciples of all nations, to bring to bear the marks of the kingdom of God wherever we are and in whatever we do. Where we where we come to the understanding that we are simply broken people. We are simply broken people who have experienced the grace of Jesus in our lives telling other broken people how to experience the grace of Jesus in their lives. You see This is our mission. The mission for all of us as individuals begins, and this is important. I don't want you to miss this. It begins with all of us as individuals coming to the conclusion and actually meaning a belief and an ownership that you and I are truly the worst of sinners. The beauty of the gospel begins when you come to a conclusion in your own life that you are the worst of sinners. There is no sinner in the world worse than you. The beauty of the gospel transforming your life begins right there. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. If your focus is on the rules... If your focus is on creating rules and following rules and mandating that other people follow the rules that you have created, if that's your focus, you won't actually be able to say that. You won't actually be able to go out into the world and say, I am simply a deeply broken sinner who has found grace in Jesus Christ. I've found my rest in him and you can too. If you're actually saying, I'm a better person than you are, because these are my rules and I follow them and you don't, they will not listen to you because they will not believe you because you have not come to that place in your own heart where you have actually broken. I am the worst of sinners. Do you believe that? That is what Jesus is pushing those Pharisees to see, and they refuse. They refuse over and over and over again. They want to believe that there is a part of them, there is a piece of them that is superior to somebody else. And he's saying, you can't believe the gospel if that's what you believe. You can't. And you and I can't either. And that brings us back to all of those broken musical instruments, languishing in storerooms and empty classrooms all over the city of Philadelphia. What do you do with a whole bunch of broken instruments in need of repair? Broken instruments that haven't been played for years. What do you do with them? Well, you play them, of course. I mean, what else are you going to do with them? In fact, that is what they did. A composer in Philadelphia, a man named David Lang, teamed up with a group of people for a pretty genius idea. Compose a symphony that was to be played on all of those broken instruments and recruit professional musicians in Philadelphia to perform the symphony, charge people a whole bunch of money to come hear this, and use the money, the proceeds from what you charge, to send the musical instruments off to be repaired and then to get them back and to spread them out in the public school system of Philadelphia so that children can learn music. And thus was born the symphony for broken instruments. That's the name of it, which was written for and then performed on all of these instruments scattered all over Philadelphia that were broken and deemed unusable. So the cellos with gigantic holes in them and missing strings, yeah, they were in that. The 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 trombone whose bell was bent, you know, and only, you know, played like half of one note and it was flat, yeah, that was in there. You know, the the one-valve trumpet, that was in there. All of these broken instruments making music together to accomplish a wonderful redemptive goal. As I think about that image, I believe that that is about the absolute best definition of the mission of the church that I can possibly conceive of. Because that is what we are. We, the church, are a symphony of broken instruments as soon as we think of ourselves as a symphony of pristine instruments, well, that's when our mission goes awry. But if we think of ourselves as a symphony of broken instruments, broken people who have experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ simply going into the world to tell other broken people where they can experience grace and rest, that is where the beauty happens. That's where the beauty happens. Because the rest is found in Christ alone. So listen, I want to leave you this, with this one thing because I think in this context, in this church, this is actually important to say. Don't worry about being perfect. Do not worry about being perfect. First of all, you're going to fail. You are not going to be perfect. And if you strive for perfection, you are only going to do damage to yourself and you're only going to also do damage to all of the people that, 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 that have to, to live with you. Don't worry about being perfect. You can't do it. That's the gospel. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was perfect. What our call is is simply to rest in him and then to go out into the world and say, can you believe this? Can you believe this? Jesus saved me. And I'm the worst. I'm the worst. He can save you too. Because you're not the worst. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the redemption that we have in you. That we, all of us, the worst of sinners, the most broken, find redemption and rest in you. Help us to rest in that. And also to own that truth. That our message to this world can be beautiful and not burdensome.